which is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruiz. Let me tell you what today's text is about. We're in Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, we're getting close to the end here. In, uh, in the Old Testament, in the, uh, actually in the geography of Israel, God painted a picture for us way back when to teach us through the ages, I think, what the intent of this passage in Ephesians 5 is for. And here's what I mean. In Israel, you've got a few bodies of water. At the furthest north, just at the base of Mount Hermon, the snow-capped peaks of Mount Hermon, they melt down and they feed this body of water. It's called the Sea of Galilee. It's also called the Sea of the Harp. It's in the shape of a harp, but it's just a beautiful body of water. It's rich in nutrients because it's fed from this constant trickling down of these melted snow peaks of Mount Hermon. And it's just a beautiful body of water. From there, if you know the geography, it, it funnels down through the Jordan River all the way down to a larger body of water called, anybody know the name of it? Go ahead and flip back to that little map in the back of your Bible. It's the Dead Sea. You know why you call it the Dead Sea? It's the Dead Sea because all those nutrients that are funneled into the Sea of Galilee that trickle down through the Jordan Sea, the Jordan River, they terminate there in the Dead Sea. Now, the problem with the Dead Sea and the reason that it gets the name the Dead Sea is because it does not have an outlet. All those nutrients that get funneled into the Dead Sea have nowhere to go. And what happens when you get all those blessings that just pile up and pile up and pile up, they end up being a detriment and not a benefit. And so they turn into these salt crustaceans. And I'm not going to give you the whole geographical, geological education here. But there's a picture there in the geography in Israel. And here's what it is. That the blessings that flow into your life can't terminate in your life. If all that God has poured into you, namely through his grace in the gospel message, if that terminates in you, guess what? You become what maybe I've called before a Dead Sea Christian. And you get crusty, so to speak. Blessings don't flow out of you, and so you, you literally will dry up. You become Dead Sea Christian. I think that's where Paul's going right here. Ephesians chapter 5, we're in verse 15. Here's what he says. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Be careful how you walk. He's used this phrase now about walking. This will be the fifth time in the second half of Ephesians. Four times in Ephesians, uh, three times, two times. Let me keep counting down here. In Ephesians 4. And now this will be the third time in Ephesians 5, I believe. This is going to be the last time that he uses it. In the first half of the book to the, the letter to the Ephesians, he tells us about the manifold grace of God. Here's how much God loves you. And then in chapter 4, he starts to say to us, okay, now here's what your life should look like based on what God has done for you. Here's the praise that he deserves based on his grace, so to speak. And he uses this phrase, walk in this way, walk in this way, walk in this way. This will be now the fifth time. He's told us to walk in a manner that's worthy. He's told us, to walk not like we used to walk. Don't walk like the Gentiles. And they were Gentiles for the most part. Walk in love. And then he said last week, 
walk in light. This week, he's going to say now, walk wise. Walk wise. Let me tell you what this verse means. Verse 15, therefore, based on everything he's already said now leading up to this, to conclude this thought on how our life should walk out, what life should look like, he says, be careful how you walk. Now, let me stop on that word careful because I don't think it gives us a full picture of what he's saying here. The word careful here in the Greek is spelled A-K-R-I-B-O-U-S. We get words like akron. We get words like acrid. If something has ever, uh, you ever heard somebody say that that just smells acrid, maybe? They know far too many words if they're using the word acrid. But maybe you've heard it before. It means it's, it's sharp smelling. It's poignant, right? If you're throwing darts and you long to be accurate and hit the bullseye, you want to you wanna be on point. You want to be on center. You want to be accurate, Okay. That's the root. That's the base of this word when he says, be careful how you walk. In other words, he's saying, be accurate with your walk. Be on point with your walk. Be, you could say, sharp with your walk, church. In other words, he's saying, be intentional. That's what it means to be careful with your walk. It means focus in, hone in. Church, we don't just live out our life. Christianity is not just a being tossed to and fro kind of Christianity. We live intentional. We live on point. We live careful. Our lives, when it comes to Christianity, should be sharp. They should be accurate in response to God's grace. Amen? That's what he means to be careful, be on point. We have a map. We have a heading. When the waves come... We're not without an anchor, amen? We're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes our way. We live on point. We live sharp, intentional. Now, keep going. Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise men. What does it mean to walk wise? Your life, therefore, should be an example. In fact, whether you know it or not, if you're a Christian or you claim even to be a Christian, your life is an example whether you know it or not. Now, that could be good news, and it could be bad news for the rest of us. Amen? I had a guy in college, I think I told you the story, when um, my life was kind of going in and out of my Christianity, my committedness was sort of in and out. I had a good buddy who I uh, still consider to be one of my best friends in life. He came to me and he said, hey, you're a Christian, right? We hadn't known each other long, but I had I had uh, seen that he were the, was a Christian through some random circumstances. I saw just a tape in his car of a Christian uh, group, and I said, you must be a Christian. He said, yeah. And uh, he said, you're a Christian, right? I said, yeah. He said, well, listen, don't tell anybody. I said, well, <laughs> why not? He said, well, man, your life right now just doesn't seem to be lining up. You're an example whether you know it or not, but right now you're not being an example of Christ. So do me a favor, just don't tell anybody you're a Christian and, and then there'll be no misconception about what it means to be a Christian. I thought, man, it's a hard word. I've never forgotten it. And for a while there, I just kept my mouth shut until I let the Lord work out what he was doing in my life, literally work it out of my life. 
To walk wise, uh, I think of Scripture. What does it mean to be wise? Scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the starting point for wisdom. Amen? The fear of the Lord, meaning that, that a respect, an honor of the Lord in our lives, that's the beginning of wisdom. I mean, does your life honor him? Does your life indicate that you have a reverence or a respect or a fear for him? Put another way, does your life reflect at all that you have any kind of relationship with God? Walk wise. Walk in wisdom. The beginning of that wisdom is is that relationship, that fear, that reverence you have for the Father. Be on point, Christians. Be accurate. Be sharp. Hone in. Target with your life. Your walk ought not be just a floating down the river of life. What does your life look like, Christian? What does it mean to walk wise? One of our men, uh, I hate when he does it, but um, it's really my fault because I started it with this whole what day is it thing. Maybe you've seen some of our men wearing the t-shirt that says, go ahead, ask me what day it is. And the challenge I posed to our men at the beginning of this year was that if you can keep track of what day of the year it is, I don't mean like, you know, August such and such or September such and such. I mean, it is the 200 and what day of the year. Any guys know, by the way? 246th day of the year out of 366. And every now and then I told them, I said, I'll just email you and maybe I'll remind you what day of the year it is. Maybe I'll ask you what day of the year it is. If you're not sure what day of the year it is, you're probably just floating, in other words. And you're not being intentional. You're not being sharp. You're not being accurate with your life. There is no direction in your life. And you're probably just like many of my days, too many of my days, I'm just floating through life. But I hate every now and then I get this text back from a guy, I won't name him, and uh, it, says, it says something to the effect of, how are you living today? Does your life look any different than the rest of the lives around you? Can anyone tell the difference between you and the guy next to you, meaning the non-Christian, you're claiming to be a Christian? Is there any difference? Don't. Oh. Amen. What a great question. What a great question. Are we floating? Are we being accurate? Are we living on point? Are we walking unwise, meaning we're living just like everybody else with no direction? Or are we, are we walking wise? Look at the next verse. Here's what it means to walk wise in Paul's estimation. He's going to unpack it for you. If you're not sure what it means to walk a life that is wise instead of being unwise, He's going to tell you. Here's what it means. Verse 16. It means that we make the most of our time because the days are evil. What does that mean, Paul? Most of us get the second half. We understand that the days are evil. Amen? I mean, there's a lot of stuff going downhill out there. Amen? I mean, uh, the old phrase, it's going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, every day, if you watch the news, you just see one after another and they become more and more frequent right? And you start to sound like your father a generation before, but worse, what's going on out there? I mean, there's no argument. You're not going to find an argument in here, and you're not even going to find an argument out there who those who don't even name the name of Christ. The days are evil. It's not getting better out there. It seems to just be getting worse. Nobody's going to argue with that. We get that. What do you mean then, Paul, by redeeming the time? It's a great phrase. Let me unpack it for you. The word for time here, and it should be plural in your translation, making the most of your times. 
Let me tell you what this means. It's not the Greek word chronos. We get chronology from. That means the order of things. That means one day after another, after another, another. It's not a, he's not talking about a chronological sequence of time here. In Greek, you have many words for our English words. So it's not chronos. It's the Greek word karyos. Karyos is a different word. It doesn't mean daily. It doesn't mean a sequence of days. It's not a chronology of time. It means an age. It means a season. So redeem the season at hand is maybe a good way to think about this. Redeeming not the chronology of the thing, redeeming the age. What is the age? Those in Ephesus would know well by this point in Paul's teaching what age they were in. It's the same age that we continue to live in. It's not the age of the fathers. It's not the age of law. We live in what's called the church age. We live in the age where Israel has rejected the Messiah and God has set them on the shelf for a moment. And we live in this parentheses. It's also called the age of grace where God has just paused his eternal plan. And he has extended grace now through, surprise, surprise, the Gentiles. And he's calling those who are not a people into being a people. And when Israel said, we're not going to do it, he said, okay, I'll even use the Gentiles to do it. And he took the first string guys and he set them on the bench. And now we get to step up as a second string. And now in the church age, the age of grace, God says, okay, I'm going to pause everything right now. And he has ascended. And we're in that period between his death and his return, his resurrection and his return. And it's this parentheses. And we're in this age. We're in this season. We're in this karyos. And it's the age of grace. It is what Peter would call in 2 Peter 3.10. Anybody know that verse? Peter fighting against the mockers of the day. You know, you got to imagine that as time rolled on here, even in the first century, those who were proclaiming that Jesus was going to come back started to be mocked. Every day that went by, every year that went by, people started saying, isn't that Jesus guy supposed to be coming back? I thought he was God. Didn't you guys say he was God? Didn't you say he was raised? Yeah, I know a bunch of people supposedly saw him, but he's gone now. Is he coming back? I mean, here we go. It's another day. Where is he? And Peter says, men are beginning to mock us, but let's be clear about something. In regard to God coming back and judging this world, he says, here's here's what's happening right now. God is not slow about his promise, as some might think him to be slow. Literally, the word could be translated slack. God's not a slacker. He's going to judge the world. He's coming back. Don't worry. God's not slow about his promises as some count slowness, but he is being, anybody know the word? Patient towards us, not desiring that any should perish. That's God's game plan right here, right now. The play that God has called is patience. In the grace of the Father from all eternity, he has caused this pause before his judgment comes. He's saying, hold on. The floodwaters of judgment have been held back. And now we, his people, live in a time where we're supposed to be waving people across the Jordan. Come on. Come on over to the promised land. One more day, God is restraining his judgment. He's not slow about his promise to come back. In fact, what he's doing is being patient towards you because his desire, the heart of the Father of God, is not that any should perish, but that all would come to, what's the word? 1 Peter 2.10, repentance. What's God doing right now? 
He's pushed pause on his judgment. And through you and I, the age of the church, the age of his graciousness, he's saying, come on. All who would fall at the feet of the cross, come. Grace is extended to you. Grace is extended to you, come. Now, whether you knew it or not, that's the age in which you live. Now go back to the verse, verse 16. How do we walk wise? How do we walk sharp, on point? How do we walk intentional? Christians, this is what Paul's calling us to. Here's how. You redeem the karyos, redeem the age. This word redeem, it, it simply means that we make the best out of it. What does it mean when you take that bottle and you turn it back in? You redeem it. You get money for it. You exchange the day as it is, evil, and you benefit from it. You, you get a redemption of it. You take something that is costing us now and you let it pay for itself. Does that make sense? The word redemption, maybe this will be clearer for you. It's the Greek word ex agorazo. It's the exact word that's used for your salvation. Ago, radzo is the Greek word market. X means to take from the market. Maybe you know this picture of your salvation, or maybe you don't. The picture of your salvation is this, that the slave who was once being sold in the market gets bought from the market. Ex agorazo. You know the word we translate it? Redemption. It's a picture. It's the biblical picture of your salvation. God has looked down upon you and I and he has gone into the marketplace where we were once being sold as slaves on the auction block of our sin. And he has come in and he has purchased us by his blood. He has, by his blood, redeemed you. You got the picture? Now, that is what he's done for us. And Paul then turns now to us who should understand our own redemption And he says, walk wise, walk sharp. How do we do that, Paul? Your job now in this age of grace is to redeem the age. Daily, we buy it back for the glory of God. We are stealing away from the adversary his evil days. And we're turning them in for the benefit of the king. Are you tracking with what it means to walk wise? Your salvation, in other words, doesn't terminate on you. For some of us, Christianity and the relationship we have with Christ, it's to our benefit and our benefit alone. Paul's saying right here that Christ is not just for you to enjoy. As you enjoy him, your desire should be that you redeem others. We're in an age, Paul would say, where God's grace is being extended. Do you know that? If you know that, then you will walk wise. What it means to walk wise is that you walk on point. You're not just floating down the river of life, spending your days however you want to spend them. We're in a time frame here, people, and it's not going to last forever. One day God's going to unpause this parentheses and his grace will come to an end and judgment will fall right now he's being patient 
Are you taking advantage of his patience, Christian? Or has his grace terminated on you? Have you become that Dead Sea Christian? Or are you redeeming the times? Verse 16. Well, 17, he goes on. If we don't redeem the times, look at what you get called. You get called a fool. The picture of a fool in Scripture, according to God, is the man who is told what time it is, but does not respond in his life accordingly. You know what I would say? The world out there has then the right to look in here at us who say, judgment is coming. Amen? Yep, judgment is coming. We're in an age of grace, amen? We sure are. But you're not telling anybody about that grace which is going to end one day? Well, I'm kind of busy. I've got a lot of stuff going on. I mean, I've got my career to think about. I've got my 401k to think about. I've got my kids' college fund to think about. I've got, you know, my life to think about. I've got my social security to think about. I've got the whole political season of life. I've got all these things to think about. Uh, You know, as I can, you know, if anybody asks me, I'll tell them about the hope that is within me. But, yeah. I mean, is that the kind of answer that we would give to the guy out there who says, you're telling me judgment's coming? Yeah, I'm telling you judgment's coming. You're telling me that it's, it's, it's grace right now, free to us, if only we fall and accept it at the feet of Jesus, our sacrifice? That's right, that's what I'm telling you. But you're not telling anybody? I mean, do you understand how, how foolish that looks? I mean, when you say it like that, what should they be calling us? <laughs> A bunch of fools. You know what I would say? I'd take it a step further. They must not actually even believe what they say to believe. It's foolishness to say we believe what we say we believe, but to not live on point. It'd be like floating down the river with no direction, no aim, no paddle, no map, no course, no anchor, tossed to and fro, just like everybody else, by the way. We could say that we're, we're unwise. We have no wisdom inherent in our Christianity. We are called to redeem the times. We're called not to be foolish. We're called, on the other hand, to, what does it say, the last half of 17? Understand the will of the Lord. Do you know that in, in Christianity, you have been given the will of God? You should, as a Christian, be growing in your understanding of what these ages are. You should know that you live in a season of grace. Some of you do not. You should know that one day this age of grace, this church age, it will terminate. And the beginning of the end will will start. That last karyos will begin. That final age. Ushering in the kingdom of God, his return. All that begins. You should know. So that you realize what you're doing right now is not just living in this cycle and you get old and then your kids grow and then they get old and then they pass it on to their kids, etc. It's not going to go on forever. God's not slow about his promises. He's going to come back and judge. Be clear. Be on point. Be accurate in your understanding of what the will of the Lord is. The reason he's being patient is so that none will perish, but that men and women will come to repentance. Are you, in that, are you in that game plan, Christian? 
Are you falling into that game plan of bringing men and women to repentance so that they will not perish? Or are you just floating down the river of your Christian life? To the Corinthians, Paul said it this way. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says something interesting at the beginning of that chapter. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses in this world. We are, in this world, supposed to be destroying speculations. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're supposed to be taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's a picture of what Paul's life was pointed at, was directed at, was focused on. He wasn't just walking with no direction. He wasn't just floating. He understood that his life had a spiritual meaning and direction to it. Um, Let me ask you, does this world need us to walk like we know where this world is heading? Do they need direction in politics? Uh, does Does the world need a standard from God? Or or do they have it figured out? Does the world need a word from God? Who Who's supposed to have that word? You. Does the world need a word on family? Yeah. On what a family looks like? What a family is? Maybe from the originator of family himself? Does the world need a word on marriage? A standard on what marriage is, what it's supposed to look like, how it's supposed to play out? (laughs) They sure do. Does the world need a a standard on raising kids? I do. It's here. You should have it. You should be displaying it. Does the world need a standard on morality, finances, how to be a neighbor, for goodness sake? They sure do. Does the world need a standard on schooling, counseling, pharmacy, all, you name it. They They need a standard. Christianity brings answers, not just opinions. There's a whole lot of opinions floating around out there. Windows must be down. This is why, by the way, um, nine times out of ten, when you are here at Cornerstone, you're going to hear us saying, open up to the book of such and such. The best thing, I don't know if you know this, but the best thing that I can do for you is to teach you the word of God. The best thing that I could do for you is to teach you the text and not my opinions. That's why I teach the text and not primarily topics. Um, The world needs you to walk on point, not just to be flushed down the river with everybody else's opinion. Uh, One of our life groups, let me just give you an idea here. One of our life groups... It's going to be starting here in a couple weeks, is going to uh, be walking through the Song of Solomon. Have you read the Song of Solomon? The guy who taught me the Bible, he did a whole series on the Song of Solomon. And it started out, uh, he said that I was on a jog with a buddy, and a guy told me, he said, you should preach the Song of Solomon. He said, are you crazy? Nobody will even come. And he said, you should try it anyway. So he took it really just as a challenge. He said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach through the Song of Solomon. Did it six weeks Denton Bible Church, Denton, Texas. And um, their church in those six weeks, he said, went from 600 to 1,200 in six weeks. 
He said, I think we might be on to something. Uh, this Bible study for college students in, uh, in Dallas called him and said, hey, would you teach that, that Song of Solomon study? Would you teach it to a bunch of college singles? He said, okay, I'll do it. And, uh, and this is in the 80s. He went over to this Bible study called Metro Bible Study. And in the 80s, taught to a group of um, about 800 singles in the first week, Song of Solomon. By the sixth week of Song of Solomon, 1,200 students, 1,200. 18 months later, they said, teach the Song of Solomon again, please. He said, okay, we'll teach it again. At the very announcement that he was going to teach the Song of Solomon again, at the very first session, it went from 1,200 to 4,000. He said, I finally understood the world is hungry for a standard on what does it mean to court? What does it mean to date? What does it mean to find a spouse? What does God say about marriage? What does he say about arguing? What does he say about love? What does he say about sex? What does he say about these things? And he said, people flocked to it. They need a standard. Um, Jeff's going to lead some of our young singles and marrieds through the Song of Solomon. No pressure there, Jeff. I'm expecting 4,000 by the end. Think about it, though. Um, 50s and 60s, there weren't maybe but just a handful of Christian schools or even Christian colleges, were there? What happened? In schools and in colleges, truth, morality, right and wrong, black and white, it went away, didn't it? It started to fall apart. And instead of there being black and white, right and wrong, true morality that we can hang on, a standard of truth, what happened? We started to get this idea that, well, anybody's idea could be just as accurate as the next guy's. And so what it meant to be enlightened, what it meant to be really wise and smart is, is that you know that you can't know anything for sure. And so that's what it means to be really smart and wise. And so what did we do? We took anything that was a standard out of schools. And so what had to happen? You had Christians rise up and say, we're not going to deal with that. And you had Christian schools now started, Christian colleges now started that say, no, we're not going to play that game. We're going to go back to the truth. We're not just going to float. We're not just going to flounder. There is a truth. There is a standard of right and wrong. There is a true morality. And God said it. And so you got Christian schools rise up. This happened in Christian counseling as well. There was no such thing as Christian counseling. It used to be back in the 50s and 60s, you go to a counselor and they would say, all right, what seems to be the problem today? Well, here's my problem. Okay, well, here's maybe where you've gone wrong. Fix this. Thank you very much. There was, there was a black and white. They could tell you, okay, here's where things are going awry. Uh, according to the word of God, according to not even having to say that, it was just the general understanding of right and wrong in our society that was still there to a degree. They could say, okay, fix this. Thank you very much. Now, things have changed. When you go to a counselor Hey, here's my problem. I, I'm just miserable in my life. Hmm. Why do you think you're miserable? And instead of being able to tell somebody, here's where you've gone wrong. Here's black, here's white, and here's where life has gotten off track. Now it's all reflective and subjective. And now the counselor just looks at you and says, well, what do you think is wrong? Well, I don't know. I think I'm miserable because I'm miserable. Well, I agree. That'll be a hundred dollars. You see, we've taken away truth. And the point of all this is, is simple. Christian, we live accurate. 
We don't walk just aimlessly. We, we live according to a standard of truth, but it doesn't, it, it, it's not just intended for your benefit alone. Paul knew very well that there's a lost world out there that needs you to shine the light to it. What does it mean to walk wise, Paul? What does it mean to walk on point? Well, it means you understand the day that we live in. It means you understand where this world is headed. It means that you understand that they need truth out there. Redeem the time. Save it. Very literally. Save it. Buy it back. That's what God has done for you. You do it now. Um, Look at the next verse. Let me give you a little extra here before we go to the next verse. Proverbs 29, verse 18, you've heard this verse before. The old King James says it this way, where there is no vision, the people perish. Have you heard that before? Pastors love to use this in in building campaigns and fundraising campaigns and beginning of the year sermons, where there is no vision, the people perish. And so I'm going to cast the vision so that we don't die around here. Um, That's not exactly what the verse means. The New American Standard, a little better translation at least of that verse, says where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. Unrestrained. What does that mean? To be unrestrained means that you have no anchor. It means you're just flailing about. It means you're being tossed to and fro. Where there is no vision, it's not just that you die, okay? And we're not really sure what that means. A better picture is that you become unrestrained. Where there is no vision from God, you are unrestrained. It means you're not anchored or anything. You're just going in whatever direction you want to go in. The English Standard Version is even a little better, where there is no prophetic vision. So it's not just vision, but it's the prophetic vision, meaning where there is no word from God. Not just whatever vision I can dream up of, and here's where we're going to go, and here's what we're going to do. It's not just that if, if we don't know what direction we're going, it's just not that simple. Although that's true, it's more than that. Where there is no prophetic vision, meaning where there is no word clear from God, the people are unrestrained. They're not tied to anything and they have no direction. They're floating downstream with whatever will push them in whatever direction. Is that a picture of our world today? Yeah, they're just floating. There's no, there's no prophetic word from God. Well, there is, but they're not hearing it. Amen? They're not responding to it. Or maybe we're not taking it to them. Maybe that's a better way to put it. I don't go to the New Living Translation for many verses, but I like what the New Living Translation says about Proverbs 29. When people do not accept divine guidance, I like that, they run wild. Is that a picture of what's happened? That's what's happening. We just do whatever we want to do. Do whatever we want to do. We, we just go wild. Why? Because we adhere to no standard. How are they supposed to know the standard, Christian? It's you and it's me. We are to be walking on point, wise, redeeming the times, knowing what time it is, knowing we're in the age of grace. And therefore, we're not going to be foolish. Because why? You're supposed to understand what the will of God is. You're supposed to understand his plan from eternity to eternity. Now look at the next verse. It seems so out of place. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. What in the world is he talking about? That just seems so randomly odd at the end of this section. What does that mean? Why does he start talking about B? 
being drunk. Follow me here. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. The word dissipation uh, deserves some attention here because it's, a, it's an old word. Um, the Greek word is asatia. If, uh, if you're a little older, maybe you've heard someone back in the day called a sot. Have you ever heard somebody called a sot? If you look it up in, uh, in your English dictionary, a sot is a drunkard. It's a drunkard. The word dissipation here is a reference to being a drunkard. Okay? But even more than that, it comes from the root soter. You know what soteriology is in theology? It's the study of salvation. It's the study of salvation. So there's a whole play on words here. Now just hang on. Follow me here for a second. Paul's going to use this whole play on words to tie all this together. And you're thinking, where is he going with this don't drink wine now thing? How does that fit in here? I mean, is he just giving me this random rule because he just decided to, to rule out, you know, being a drunkard randomly? I mean, why go there? Here's why it goes there. The word dissipation is a, it's a play on words. Ah, soter. More literally, you could say it means no salvation. Do not be drunk with wine because there's no salvation in it. Or it's sometimes translated this way. It's a waste. When somebody gets completely drunk or they decide they're going to go out and they're going to tie one on, what do they say? I'm going to get wasted. Now, they don't know how truly literal of a meaning that is. It's not just figurative, it's, it's literal. Here's where Paul's going. Don't go out and get drunk with wine because there's no salvation in it. In, in this day, to walk unwise, to walk like a fool, meant that you're just doing what everybody else is doing. You're just floating down the river just like them. And he pulls out this picture of what daily life looked like in Ephesus. And guys are just getting drunk and they're doing whatever they want to do. And what does a drunk person look like? Is there any sharpness to them? Are they on point? No. Or are they stumbling all over themselves? Can they walk straight? They cannot. Can they put a sentence together? They cannot. It's the opposite picture here of being on point. It's the opposite of walking wise. It's the picture of being a fool. You look just like the rest of the guys. More importantly, you know what, you know what the result is? There's no salvation in it. And you know what your life amounts to then? If you just go down that way, if you just float down that river like everybody else, you know what your life amounts to? Nothing. Your life in the final evaluation is spent on yourself and it terminates there and you have become completely wasted. Ah, so tear. No salvation. There's no use coming out of you. Have you redeemed the times? No. Have you bought anyone back in this age of grace? No. There's been no result of salvation out of your life. Paul would say that that's a waste, Christian. Instead, what does he say? Be filled with the Spirit. Now, let me tell you why he says this. Instead of being drunk with wine and being wasted, 
Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, why does he parallel these two? Why does he, why does he play off of this? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What does that look like? Some of you have grandiose ideas of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Some of you have very charismatic ideas of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. But let me tell you in the context here and in many other places in the New Testament what it means to be filled with the Spirit very specifically, okay? Nowhere else that I know of from Romans to Revelation is the phrase be filled with the Spirit used. It is used in the Gospels as far as I know, in one place. It's Luke chapter 1. Let me read to you what Luke chapter 1 says. and See if you can get the idea of where this phrase filled with the Spirit should be pointed, should be directed. Luke 1 is about, anybody know? John the Baptist. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor. Interesting that it says that. Right after that, what does it say? Instead, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Odd pairing there. We see it again in Luke, don't we? Now, what does that result in? What is the goal for John the Baptist? What did God use him for? While yet in his mother's womb, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to their God. It is he who will go as a, what is John the Baptist called? A forerunner before him, That'd be Jesus in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. What did Elijah do? Turned men back to God. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so that as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You know what the purpose of being filled in the spirit is in the context of scripture? It always seems to be pointed at the proclamation of the good news. It's the redemption of humanity. To be filled with the spirit always is connected with the proclamation of the gospel. If you go to Acts, I think this phrase is used 10 times, nine out of 10 of the times to be filled with the spirit in Acts means that in the context, they were filled with the spirit and they proclaimed the gospel of the Lord. It's always connected to this proclamation. So we, there may be these fanciful ideas of what it means to be filled with the spirit. And, and there are some legitimate Fanciful ideas to what it means to be filled with the Spirit. But you know what it definitely means? It means that you, if you are filled with the Spirit, you will proclaim the gospel of good news to those who are dying out there in this age of grace before time runs out. We will be on point. We will be clear. We will be light. We won't hide our light under a basket. A drunkard can't walk straight. He can't put one foot in front of another, much less string a logical sequence of words together. He falls all over himself. He's wasted. Is this how we live in response to the grace that's been extended to us? It's not. We walk on point. We make the most of the day because the age is temporary and grace will end. Acts 1. Let me read it to you. Acts 1 verse 7 says something important. Let me back up a couple verses. Gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you had heard from me. From John, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is this the time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? Uh, Incidentally, you know what the word time there is? It's not... Chronos, it's karyos. Is this the age? 
Is this the age where you're going to go back down there and whoop up and take names and establish your kingdom? They were asking, is this the age? It's not. It's not. Look at what he says. Jesus said to them, verse 7, it is not for you to know the epochs or the karyos, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Don't worry about it, in other words. But, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What's the point of that power and Holy Spirit church? Here it is. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means that you're not just falling over yourself, just stumbling through this life. Be filled with the Spirit means be on point, Christians. Redeem the times. It's with the proclamation of the gospel. Um, one of our men called me this week, and he said, Pastor, i got to tell you about this, <laughs> this, uh, this uh, chance I had to share the gospel. He said, I was driving around. I, I was at a meeting, and I was, I was uh, driving around, and I realized I grew up in this area, and I wanted to find the house where I grew up in. And said, so I was trying to find the house where I grew up in, and then he said, uh, I had to go to the bathroom, Pastor. So I just... I just had to find somewhere to go to the bathroom. And so I got off track and I just ended up in the middle of nowhere, uh, long away from where I thought I had to be. I just ended up at this bathroom. And he said, I was heading into the bathroom and this guy, this young black man stopped me and uh, asked, for, asked for a buck or something. And uh, he, said, uh, he said, so I just knew that this was my opportunity to share the gospel with him. And I thought to myself, as he's telling me this story, that's it. That's Ephesians five fifteen, being on point. Redeeming the times, seeing an opportunity, grasping it, taking advantage of it. The story goes that he shares the gospel with this guy, and the guy starts saying, man, this is strange because somebody else just shared the gospel with me, and he had a card in his wallet of the gospel from this guy who shared the gospel with him a week before. And this young kid, he was getting kind of freaked out by how, you know, seemingly uh, coincidental this occasion had been, right? And so um, it goes on that, uh, and it's Eric Scoggins, by the way. Some of you now can put a face with a, with a name. And Eric says, Eric says, I'm standing there in the, in the store with this guy, and this, this old black lady comes in. Who did you say she reminded you of? Mama, Mama Odie from what was the movie? Princess. Princess and the Frog, if you've seen that cartoon movie. So Mama Odie comes pouncing into this gas station, right? And uh, you were, pro- were you the only white guy in the store, just to get a clearer picture? Probably, all right. And uh, so here's Eric, big old burly Eric, and he's talking to this young black man. And uh, this lady bounces in here, Woo! praise the Lord, Jesus is good. And she looks and locks eyes with Eric, and she says to him, the Spirit of the Lord is all over you. Keep doing what you're doing. And Eric said he got chill bumps all over him. She didn't know he was sharing the gospel with this kid. And he looked over at this kid who he was sharing the gospel with, and Eric said his eyes were this big now. Freaked him out. Isn't that interesting though? The spirit of the Lord is all over you. Keep doing what you're doing. What was he doing? He was filled with the spirit. He was proclaiming the good news in an age of grace to one who is perishing. Um, Eric, uh, how old are you, Eric? 45. Is that true? <laughs> Melissa, 45. Um, how long ago was it that you did Way of the Master, Eric? It's been three years now? Two years? A year. 
let's say a year, and you're 45, in your first 44 years, give me a good ballpark, how many times do you think you shared the gospel? In the last year, how many times do you share the gospel? At least. I, I think you've told me more stories than 40. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. How many, who, who taught you the way of the Master? Was it me, Preston? Where'd you get? Where, Radley taught him way of the Master. And now uh, Eric has done Way of the Master. How many times have you taught the class? Just once? There's been at least uh, half a dozen people who have gone through it, starting up another class here in just a couple weeks. Um, I'm running over here. I've got a whole list of stories here to tell you of men who and women who decided not to just float, but to let life be directed by God. To be Galatians 5.16, walking in the Spirit. That may be the only other time Paul uses that phrase, to walk, and he says walk in the Spirit. And now I think we understand a little bit better what he means by that. It better be in proclaiming the good news. Uh, I could could tell you about uh, three guys in college that I connected with. Started a little dorm devotion. Nobody came, nobody came, nobody came. We ended up seeing probably half a dozen to a dozen guys saved by the time we graduated. Uh, one of those guys ended up uh, there in college being the president of our FCA. Had 120-something kids coming to FCA meetings uh, in college. We had a bigger FCA group than the University of Kentucky at the time. We had like 1,500 kids in our school. And he led that thing. And I can't tell you how many men and women came out of that FCA huddle because of that guy leading it who are in the ministry right now. Uh, the other two of us both... Uh, were involved in planning churches. One here, Cornerstone, you're sitting in it, and one down in Orlando. Um, I could tell you another story of the lives that have been affected here. I could tell you about one of our elders, Jack Kemp. What is that noise? I don't know what that is. Uh, who was a lawyer. God called him through random circumstances, uh, through a lot of trials and tribulations. Now he's working with a ministry using his business experience. And he's basically planning churches and apartment complexes right now, all over Metro Atlanta. He went from being a lawyer doing closings to working now with properties, telling them why they need a essentially a chaplain in their apartment complexes. Uh, I could tell you of a guy who was a, uh, a small college football player that was sitting in his dorm room when his roommate got a call. And uh, his roommate, who was another player on the team, got this call from a uh, the head of FCA, and said, hey, the University of Georgia is looking for a chaplain, and I thought of you, and I wanted to recommend you. And so this guy put in his application, and he said, great, I'd love to do that. I'd love to be the chaplain for the University of Georgia, their football team specifically. The guy on the other end of the line says, Coach Rick is looking for a player. And so this guy called, and he talked to uh, Coach Rick, and he said, listen, uh, I like your resume, et cetera, but uh, to be honest with you, I'd really like to have a young black man in this role because we have such a large number of young black men coming into this program. He said, I'd love to have a young black godly man. And it just so happened that recently his roommate, also a football player, had been saved and was a godly man. His name is Thomas Settles, and he turned to the guy in his dorm room and said, well, maybe you ought to talk to my roommate instead. And now Thomas Settles becomes the chaplain to the University of Georgia football team. He's preached here a couple times for me. And uh, starting next month, we're planning a church with him in Athens. 
numerous lives just because somebody said, I'll let God direct my path. I'm not just going to float. I'm going to be on point. FCA as a whole was started by a guy, a college baseball coach, who got tired of seeing uh, professional baseball players do cigarette commercials. And so he decided to look into it, and he found about a dozen college and pro baseball players who said, we're Christians and weren't ashamed of it. And he got them all together in Colorado, and he invited high schoolers. And he said, maybe we'll have some high schoolers who will come and listen to you guys. 1,200 high schoolers showed up, and it became the start of Fellowship of Christian Athletes. World War II in San Diego, this sailor who was a Christian started a Bible study, and as ships were leaving port there in San Diego to go to war, he decided that he wasn't going to let a ship leave port without somebody he had shared the gospel with and that could share the gospel on that ship with the rest of the guys because they may go to their death. And so he discipled these guys, and he put them on each one of these ships, and he called those guys navigators with the intent that they would not just navigate the ocean, but they could navigate spiritually in men and women's lives. And Navigators is now worldwide. These guys, here's the point. These men and women, nothing special about them. But they just didn't float. They understood that Christianity meant God directs my course. And they aimed their life at his glory. They understood the times. They understood that there's a world out there that doesn't understand the vision, the prophetic divine word of God. And they're running wild. And whether they even know it or not, they're hungry for a standard of right and wrong and divine truth. Um, Mid-1800s, Chicago, lots of kids flocking into the city. Things were changing from a rural to a city base. A shoe salesman, shoe salesman decides that he's going to start by horseback riding around and he gathers these kids together and he needs a place to gather them. So he goes to a saloon owner and he says, can I use your saloon because they were closed on Sundays? And he starts gathering these children in a saloon on Sundays. Anybody know the guy's name? Dwight Moody, the beginning of the YMCA and the beginning of the Moody Bible Institute. Um, But that could be you. That could be you. God uh, saw via Facebook, ministry right here out of uh, our membership, I Serve Ministry. How many bags of food did you guys give out this week? 26. And how many, how many, what was this number? What did I see the other numbers? 624 meals now going out. Backpacks handed to kids at school because they may not have food over the weekend when they're on free lunch during the week. That's... That's it. That's on point. That's on point. Um, So let me just leave you with a couple questions. Why don't you go ahead and we'll do the old Baptist thing. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Just um, ask yourself a couple questions. Where has God put you in life? Is there anything you can accomplish there? Who has God put around you in life? Is there anything you can accomplish there?
Ask the Holy Spirit to tell you where you're floating. Be brave enough to ask him where you can be more accurate with your life. Where can you be more accurate with your life? Your walk is not just about you. If you think about it, somebody told you of Christ and of grace. Will you do the same? Lord, help us not to help us not to just spend our days. Instead, Lord, help us to invest them. Help us to invest them. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand? We've got just a moment. And um, we're, going to, uh, we're going to listen to Ricky sing through one more song here. And I'm just going to ask you to pray. Your challenge is whatever God lays on your heart. Amen. Your challenge is whatever God lays on your heart. By a chance, you found yourself in this place today. And this is the first time that you've heard that this age will come to an end. It will come to a close. And judgment will follow. You also need to know the good news. That God in his graciousness has bridged the gap. He has made a way. He has provided a way so that judgment does not have to crush you. Judgment does not have to crush you. Because it's fallen already on Jesus. He's taken the blow. That's the good news we take to the world in this age of grace. You pray. Ricky's going to sing. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.